Now, I don't know about you, but the idea of not just Apple or Google or Facebook owning my identity, but also them owning my fingerprint and them sending that on the wire every time there's a credit card transaction, that scares the hell out of me, right? That was Peter Kirby, serial entrepreneur, world-renowned blockchain expert, and one of the most delightful people that I've ever had the privilege of spending time with. This week, we catch up with Peter to hear a little about his life story and to learn about how his new company, Simple ID, is leveraging blockchain to reinvent digital identity security. Welcome to this week's episode of Capital D. Peter, my friend, thank you so much for coming on the show. Josh! Man, it is good to see you, your happy voice. It's very good to see you as well. It's been way too long. And congratulations, uh, I believe we're in order. You have a new kiddo, right? Yeah, our daughter, Eleanor, is three months old. Oh man, new dad, new startup. Life is pretty spectacular. Wow, that is awesome. Three months old is, wow, I, I'm envious. We're, we're talking about maybe having some more, you know, I'm getting closer to 50 every day, but my wife's only 33 and she wants another one. So we're we're talking about what that would be like, but I'm also a grandfather of an 18 month old grandson. And so, you know, it's a big step to think about doing that at this stage. You might have one of those magical situations where, you know, you've got an aunt uncle that's younger than the child. That's exactly right. Oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool. You know, kind of the opposite problem where I grew up in the country, everyone's poor. You have kids when you're really young, you know, here in Austin and a lot of these tech centers, you know, people wait until they're older and more established. And yeah, so now I've lived both lives. So now it's time to live the, the other life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm uh, 44. Pam's in her 30s. But this is our bundle of miracle. I'm, I'm so, so happy for you. Look, I want to get into what you're doing at your startup and, and talk a little bit more about the business, but... Part of what we like to do on this show is sort of give the founder story, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, what your parents did, because I think it inspires people to understand that, hey, I know Peter Kirby's this technology executive and blockchain expert, but, you know, he started as a little kid somewhere with parents and, and was able to navigate there and, and it makes it more approachable for everyone. And I don't usually know this level of detail about my friends until we do it on air. And so where'd you grow up? And let, let's talk about where you grew up and how you ended up where you are. Yeah, fantastic. All right, just, I want to say out loud though, I'm still a little kid. <laughs> Who are we kidding? <laughs> you, you, you act and look like a little kid. I bring joy and curiosity. If I could be my six-year-old self always, I think I'm doing a hell of a job. So I was really blessed to be born in Fairfax, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, my dad's a securities lawyer, so he was part of the SEC long ago and then, you know, has continued in private practice doing things that you know, frankly, he's super smart. He's super overqualified for the messes, the, the securities messes that people bring him. And my mom is a uh, nurse practitioner and she recently retired, but she did, uh, you know, sort of back surgery support for uh, for a good chunk of her career. I, I may want an intro to your mom soon because I'm staring down the barrels of back surgery over the next couple months. So I may want to- Herniated disc stuff? Yeah, I have eight, but oh four of them are really severe. Uh, so- that's why I'm glad to be upright. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Wow. Um, and when your back's sore, it's hard to function. So, um, man, you are, I, 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 like I said, I acknowledge you for being upright, brother. <laughs> well, I can say that the, the more my back is sore, the larger my front seems to become. <laughs> <laughs> because I just move less. less. And, and 
you, you can't diet your way into fitness. You've got to move at some point, you know? So, so anyway, so you're what, growing up like, okay, so, so let's go back to, you know, the entrepreneurial journey and I'll try to make this a shorter version. The significant thing that happened in my life when I was young was my parents got divorced. I was about 12 years old. That point, you know, money got really scarce for us. Yeah. Right. You know, it was two households supported by basically one household worth of income. And for me, that left some serious scarcity scars, right? And the like recognition that life can change sort of on a dime. And my giant takeaway, and, and I feel like this is the case for a lot of entrepreneurs, is like, I just needed to understand how to be captain of the ship, right? You know, like it was so scarring that I was like, I don't want to rely on the whims of the job market, the whims of relationships, all that kind of stuff in order to make things work. I get to sort of drive the bus. So I learned that. And I also learned, you know, that sort of safe and secure path of get a job and, you know, get a degree, get a job, you know, be in that job forever that like, for some reason, you know, got jumbled up. And I I, I just never believed it. Uh, I went to Lehigh University, which is a lovely, hideously expensive school in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And I did a degree in biochemistry. When I graduated, my very first job in the world was uh, as a drug rep for big pharmaceutical company. You know, I sold drugs for a living. Then I got really curious about, did, did you ever read those Robert Kiyosaki books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Oh yes, I did. I did read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. To me, that was sort of like one of those seminal works that hit me in my like mid twenties. <laughs> me too. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Wealthy Barber. Those two. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's really catapulted me. That's sort of catalyst uh, for my entrepreneurial journey. From there, it's been basically a series of chaos. In the 2000s, I ran a real estate and a development company and a mortgage company. And then the 2008 crash happened and we blew all up that portfolio. And I uh, uh, was living in Denver at the time and I left with my tail between my legs. And then I uh, ran a consumer products company and that was kind of, eh, it was okay. Eventually, I figured out, I got really interested in, in Bitcoin in the like 2012 era. This was pretty early days. This is like, you know, Bitcoin at $20 to, to give it some context. And uh, I joined one of the earliest, like we were building ASIC miners back in 2012, 2013. ASIC miners, for those of you who do not know how Bitcoin hardware works, that was sort of the earliest days of specialized chips that ran the Bitcoin network. And when we built these machines, you could buy them for like six grand and you could plug them into the wall and you can make 30 grand. So we had a, a too many customers problem. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was wild and fun. Um, and then uh, from there, I started a software company called Factum. We were one of the earliest uh, blockchain companies and we did a, what is now called an ICO in 2014. And I've just sort of been playing in the space ever since. What's an ICO? Oh, oh yeah, of course. Sorry. I just assumed that, you know, everybody is hip to the most recent financial uh, chaos that we create. <laughs> so uh, ICO stands for initial coin offering. It's sort of a play on the initial stock offering and uh, initial public offering, I should say. And the idea is you can sell the tokens that run the network. So the best example of this is how Ethereum works. The Ethereum Ether tokens uh, run the Ethereum network. And every time you do an Ethereum transaction, you are spending a little bit of a token that called a gas and it runs the network. So conceivably all the tokens equal the market value of the whole network. And I mean, Ethereum is measured in the tens of billions of dollars. I mean, no anymore. 
But once upon a time, you could buy Ethereum tokens for like 10 cents at the initial offering. You know, now they're worth thousands of dollars. So, so that was the idea that, that you could pre-sell access to the network in exchange for basically the money to build the network. Um, and like all financial tools, it started as a like cool idea dreamed up by engineers and then got taken up by excited business people and then eventually the sort of huckster, you know, scam artist stuff. So that's the arc of, of all financial stuff. <laughs> how did you how did you go from biochemistry to, you know, high tech digital currency? Like was that were you always interested in tech or Oh when you put it that way, it makes me sound really magical, but no, 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 no. I've been really blessed to get to sort of pull on threads that I'm curious about. You know, like I said, I got curious about Bitcoin and digital currency. Right? Like curiosity is a powerful force. You know, the stuff that we stay up late night reading, the stuff that you can't stop thinking about when you're walking the dog. To me, that's always been a really good indicator on a path that that excites me. And I think that often the difference between entrepreneurs and people who just sort of dream up things isn't skills or brain power or connections. It's just literally courage. It's like, okay, I'm going to jump in and see what happens and being willing to, you know, to get messy and fail. And like I said, I've blown up plenty of stuff along my, along my path. You know, I've certainly had the lost the house and the car and the girlfriend and all that stuff in, in various chapters of my life. So yeah, being uh, brave and courageous. <laughs> I, I, I love it. And so many people I talk to that are wildly successful as you are, it's that curiosity that just drives them. And I think that you know, I don't, I don't know what was going through your head back when you chose a major in college, but for me at that age, it was like, this sounds hard. It must be worth a lot of money. I should go do that. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> remind me, Josh, what did you study? Computer science. But then I was active duty, so I kind of changed. And I, but it was picked because I had heard of some friends who got double E's. They were making what I thought was really good money. It seemed really hard. And on my first project, you know, I'm with all the double E's and chemical engineers and I'll never forget, I had a team of brilliant chemical engineers who spent all day filling out spreadsheets for Sprint Telecom orders. And they were working for Ernst & Young, and they were on a big project with me, and I was doing all the network configurations, routers, firewalls, all that, and they're filling out spreadsheets. And I'm just like, you went to school for chemical engineering and you're filling out spreadsheets? They're like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what they want me to do. And so that's what work looks like. And <laughs> You know what I spent hours today doing? Spreadsheets. <laughs> well, I spent hours today tracking down all of my cryptocurrency transactions for 2020 because I'm trying to get my taxes filed. <laughs> and so, you know, I, and of course I got sucked into the Cash App and, you know, Coinbase and Robinhood. And so it's, you know, there's just, it's just complicated. Um, but, um, and of course, you know, it's taxes. So I wait till the last 30 days before they're due to do. Yeah, it. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Here we are just about the final, final deadline. Yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, but, you know, I think that's interesting that you, that you also thought about entrepreneurship as something you need courage and bravery to do. But part of what drove you that direction was sort of a fear of, of what you'd seen happen with your family, which was the opposite scenario. And I think I had the opposite experience. Both my parents were entrepreneurs. They always struggled 
And so I think I headed down a path of, hey, I'd like to have a structured uh, engineering job, which is why I joined the military, you know, as someone on the spectrum, a job that tells me what to wear every day, where to be, where my promotions and my pay raises are governed by a system. And all I have to do is just, for me, it's like awesome, you know, and, and, and I think that the people I worked with now, in some cases, they're like, man, why do you want all these rules? And why are you looking for all this structured? I'm like, because that's how I work. Yeah, I would very much like to have five of the same shirt that I could wear every day. <laughs> and so this is this is my uniform. I, I've transitioned from my summer uniform to my fall uniform by putting the vest over the, the polo. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. This is my, this polo. But for those of you that are in the audio version, Peter's wearing a polo with a, a light, like Puma style jacket over it. And I'm wearing my favorite Active Track polo shirt because I try to only wear portfolio company shirts, you know, on the show. And it also forces them to give me shirts, which, which means I don't have to buy any because I hate doing clothing shopping. Solving problems in creative ways. That's what we do. Yeah, they're expensive shirts because, you know, it, it involves a, a, a private equity investment. <laughs> it may or may not have cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. It may or may not, but, uh, but yeah, that's fascinating. And so... You got the entrepreneur bug early and you have pivoted with an entrepreneurship to move toward tech. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to say it was purely curiosity and intellectual, but man, the truth is, is like the tech industry moves fast. People are willing to invest, you know, serious money in it. It's just sort of where the most excitement is. That's where, and it's also where the best and the brightest seem to be right now. I, I think not only that, but if you're like us, and you're a lifelong learner and you have this insurmountable level of curiosity, it's a field where you never run out of things to read and learn. You can get down a rabbit hole, you know, after dinner in front of the TV on your laptop, and then you notice the sun coming up and you're like, oh, I guess I'll just write that down as the night I learned more about Bitcoin or whatever it was you're studying. Everything that you learn about feels like you're scratching the surface. Yes. Right? You know, it's like, it's like that feeling of, it's not just I could keep going down this rabbit hole. It's that I just uncovered 30 new rabbit holes with every scratch. Well, and the nice thing about building, and, and you know, my dad was a stonemason and bricklayer. And so I, I grew up from age seven, I think, working on the job sites with him. And it just instilled in, in me this desire to build things. And what's fun about this curiosity, the learning and the building is it, it doesn't take that long until you reach sort of the end of the known knowledge for that thing. And so now you're, you're building and discovering, you know, brand new things that maybe no one thought before. Yeah. That's such an interesting point. It's both an infinitely deep body of knowledge and a body of knowledge that is being created in real time. Absolutely. I, I, I just love it. You know, I, I think that there have been lots of interesting jobs for me, but getting to speak to people like yourself, you know, tech entrepreneurs every day and, you know, be lucky enough to mentor a few of them along the way as they, as they start and run their companies. It's just a dream come true. It's, it's like I get to walk into my office every day, open my mouth wide and drink from the fire hose as long as I can stand it. And, and when I'm, when I can't take it anymore, I crawl back to bed and I come in here and do it again the next day. That's enough. Okay. I'm, you know, I, I can't even make a complete sentence. I've learned so much. I have to go sleep on this and absorb it now. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it took me a little bit of my entrepreneurial journey to sort of find that sweet spot. And I think that that's, a, that's reality for, for everybody who's both courageous and daring in that way. 
you know, being willing to say like, okay, I learned this one thing, but I actually want to go play over here. And I'm still, I mean, like, you know, even though we're doing tech and we're doing blockchain tech, we're still doing lots of new things that I'm way way steep on the learning curve. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now. What's the company called? And like, tell us about what, what it is you're doing. Yeah, of course. Well, pulling on that thread of curiosity, the most recent thread of curiosity I've been pulling on is blockchain identity. So there's been a lot of really great work that's been done by Evernim and Sovereign and the Hyperledger Indie Foundation on uh, what they call self-sovereign identity. So that at its core is this idea that Josh, you can own your identity. and um, the tech behind it, um, blockchains are good at a couple of things, you know, moving money. We certainly got really excited about that. But what blockchains, blockchains really are at the core is they're neutral ledgers. So, right, all money on the planet is digital. You know, it's all ones and zeros. And it lives on bank ledgers, right? If I've got USAA. I've been a USAA customer. Me too. I love them. Yeah. We, we love them because they're pro-military and rock solid. But also that San Antonio campus is immense. You know, my money lives on the bank ledger there. So the big innovation with blockchains wasn't the ledger. It was move the ledger into a peer-to-peer environment where it's not controlled by USAA. It's controlled by collectively the people who run the network. They call them miners in the Bitcoin space. So neutral ledgers. And now we scratched our head and said, what else can we do with a neutral ledger? So the most interesting work, at least in my opinion, is coming out around building neutral identity ledgers. You know, Josh gets to own Josh's identity on a neutral ledger. Okay, so why does that matter? Um, Well, I talked about my daughter, Eleanor, was just born three months ago, right? So in a decade, there will be an identity layer of the internet. It's like sort of a guarantee. We see that going one of two ways. One is it's controlled by Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, right? Two, it gets built like the domain name server, like a neutral thing. We are very much in the camp that it gets to be beat. I want Eleanor to grow up in a world where Facebook doesn't know everything that she does. And so so to me, that was the most interesting sort of thread of technology that I got to pull on. Um, but the, you know, scratch your head now, okay, how does this make money, right? A lot of these things solve problems in the eyes of God, but we want to solve problems in the eyes of paying customers. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so we basically, and we being a couple of friends of mine who had done some work with, we said, okay, identity's cool, who would pay for it? And we weren't looking for what we would like to think of as a minimum viable problem. You know, okay, what is a problem that we get to solve with a cool base of technology? Which for me, that avoids the, you know, build it and hope they will come thing that a lot of a lot of startups do. So the minimum viable problem that we identified is, it turns out that 2020 was a banner year for credit card fraud. Credit card fraud went bananas. The reason for that's super obvious, it's because we stopped using plastic and we started typing our credit card numbers into, you know, our computers or our phones or whatever. So reported fraud cases were up 72%. You know, we're closing in, I think the number is going to be about $30 billion in, in credit card fraud in 2020. So it was a crazy year for fraud. Is that a global number or a U.S. number? That's a global number, but, I, I, you know, it's $30 billion. It's thing. humongous. It's humongous. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that's important is, you know, it, it, let's make it real. My, my wife ran a, uh, a small retail store in Austin, Texas, and... What credit card fraud meant to her is somebody charged a thing. She sent them a pair of shoes. And then the bank comes back and says that number was fraudulent. The shoes are gone, right? So the 
the 30 billion comes out of the pockets of millions of small retailers, really. So, so it's like, it's significant and it makes a huge impact on millions and millions of retailers. So uh, banner year for credit card fraud, we said, hey, what would, what would happen if we used identity to solve credit card fraud? So that's at, at our core what we're doing. Um, the experience is super simple. You know, you do a credit card charge and you look over at your phone and you go, yeah, that was me. And we really want to make it that seamless. The other thing that gives a context is there's also a law. So, you know, credit card fraud's way up. The European Union has been pushing a law called PSD2, and that requires what they call strong customer authentication on every payment. SCA, strong customer authentication, is two out of three, something you know, like a password, something you have, like a driver's license or a phone, uh, and something you are, like a fingerprint. So there's this instinct that the European Union wants to push in 2022, basically fingerprint identity on every card transaction. Now, I don't know about you, but the idea of not just Apple or Google or Facebook owning my identity, but also them owning my fingerprint and them sending that on the wire every time there's a credit card transaction, that scares the hell out of me, right? It, yeah. it scares me too. You know, I, I was walking through the airport two days ago and what I was thinking is, Wow, I hate wearing this face mask, but while I'm glad they can't see my face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So basically, the, the, the thing that we do, the, you know, the experiences, you look over at your phone, you go, yeah, that was me. But under the hood, what we're doing is we're proving Josh is Josh without sending or storing any private identifiable information. We are basically... Uh, verifying that you you and storing in, in blockchain where we talk about attributes and um, verified credentials. So we're proving that you verified that you're you, but we're not we're storing the proof and not the actual data. So we have a really sophisticated way to basically send into the credit card network. Yep, that's Josh without sending any information about Josh, any you know data about your whereabouts or whatever else. So. We really like it because it's neutral, it's private, it's global, and it's really easy for the card networks to use. It just fits right in. Wow, it sounds really cool. Um, how far along is it? Are people using it today? Is it still, is it approaching a prototype? Um, so so we, we launched the company in April. So we're building the MVP. Uh, we'll have that ready just within a few more weeks. MVP basically, um, it a minimum viable product, basically demonstrate all the product features, demonstrate how it works in an ecosystem. And then our customers will be the issuing banks, the Capital One's Citibank Chase of the world that issue the cards. So we're working on a couple of pilots that we uh, we hope to announce later this year. You know, that allows the card companies, we're thinking like whenever they renew their cards, whenever your card expires and they send you a new one, you will, you know, register that card on the Simple ID app instead of call in a phone number and punch it a code. So since April, you've started a company, built a product, solved the world's credit card fraud problems, and had a baby. Yeah, basically. Uh, well, in the order of operations. At least the, at least you weren't busy. The, having the baby was mostly my wife's work. She did the lion's share of that. I, I hope that now the baby's here, it's at least half your work. <laughs> I'm doing quite a bit of, of rearing of that baby and you know lots of sleepless nights. But yeah, yeah, we, we launched a business. We got a long way to go before solving the world's identity problems, but at least we feel like our approach where Josh's information is safe, Josh gets to own that identity, 
and we do that in a neutral environment like the domain name server, we feel like at least we're playing them for the good team. Oh, I love it. I mean, that the comparison to DNS makes a lot of sense to me. It's a great way to explain it. Um, I got to ask, total non sequitur, but where'd you meet your wife? Oh, so I went to the Acton School of Business. Do you know that in Austin, Texas? Mm -hmm. For those who don't, Acton MBA program is amazing. It was a one-year, super intense, 100-hour-a-week MBA in entrepreneurship taught by a bunch of basically successful entrepreneurs who decided to give back to the next generation. So um, I was crazy enough to do it. And then the next year, my wife was crazy enough to do it. And Pam was literally the only woman in her entire class. Wow. Yeah, she was. Uh, she's a brave woman. And um, better half doesn't do her justice. She is a ultra marathoner. She is a really remarkable woman. Well, she's a lucky woman. You're you're a heck of a guy, Peter. You're you're one of my favorite people to talk to and hang out with, bar, bar none. <laughs> now, did you guys leave Austin or are you still here? No, actually, we, we left Austin this summer. hundred degrees for six months at a time is getting pretty rough on us yeah and so i feel you we packed up we uh uh, we now live on the ocean just south of boston we happen to live exactly where pam grew up our uh uh, my in-laws are our neighbors so eleanor gets to grow up with her grandma in the backyard that is a wonderful blessed thing to be able to grow up near your grandparents yeah i i'm lucky that my wife's mom lives with us and so she's a, a huge help uh and you know we have a 13 year old um but if we decide to have some more, then the thought is maybe we take the mother-in-law and everybody and we move to Arkansas around my family because it does. It takes a, a tribe, you know, to, to raise kids nowadays. And especially if everyone is still active and, and, you know, starting companies and running them like you are. But gosh, those babies are so fun. I was with my niece last weekend and I just love them. It's such joy. You know, it's like unfiltered, unbridled joy. I just find myself like staring adoringly at her and she giggles and she, you know, goes through six emotions in a fraction of a second. And I'm just like, man, humans are perfect. And we just spend the rest of our time screwing them up. <laughs> <laughs> that, that we do, but Hey, we get to make new ones and then enjoy them. So that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. It's just all full circle. So the company name again. Oh yeah. So the company is called simple ID. Is it simple ID dot, com or io or uh oh so it's simpleid.us and you can look at our super cool movie website but um you can talk a little bit about startup finance because i think it's useful for for the audience to know what reality is sure you know we did a pre-seed round which is you know all these things shift and the names of them shift but pre-seed is basically a couple guys in a garage round and um and we raised from you know a couple uh, venture capitalists in Austin, ATX Venture Partners led it. They were basically willing to take a chance on us. That That's really the, the ask that you have. We've got an idea. We've got a decent team. You know, we're not, we're not crazy. And, and then the, the new reality of fintech is like the seed round that we'll do is going to be multiple millions. That's just how you have to do it in order to grow aggressively. Yeah. Anything that's cybersecurity related, and you can't do fintech without cyber, you know, nowadays. Yeah. It, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- these intersections just drive the, the multiples up through the roof. And, and you, you've got to go well, fast, and the like you said. Too. Yeah. yeah, the right? cost not, and, I mean? of like, the tech and the people. It's, yeah. it's, it's gotten much more expensive to start a company and a lot harder to find the talent you need. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, you know, it seems like we're in a world where all 
solid opportunities get funded, but a, a lot of what the the scarce thing is is um, is access to the the people who can build and the people who can do the work. That to me is an interesting place that we're at in the world. Yeah, my my last call was with the CTO of SoftServe, and you know they're ten thousand plus engineers strong out of Eastern Europe uh, and Central and South America, and we were talking about this this very subject. Um, they're growing like crazy, and what we're seeing is that a lot of engineers who really just want to focus on building and they either don't have a desire or the capability of, of having the interpersonal skills to do the other parts of running a business, they're finding a lot of satisfaction and rhythm right now and being able to just focus on building. Just build. Yeah. And, and the other people who, who have, who have a desire to do both to build and be technical and the interpersonal skills, they're super, super hard to find. And, and we've created a situation now, as you said, where capital is readily available. You know, it, it can be hard a hard decision, I think, for some technical founders to break out on their own when they can make a lot of money just by working for someone else. I mean, if you, you know, finish Stanford. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's, uh, yeah, go get a job for $250,000, $300,000 a year and, you know, with stock options and basically like coast, right? I mean, I, they're working hard. That's not a... You know, working hard is, is, is sort of table stakes, but you don't have to take risks. You don't have to make any difficult decisions in your life. You know, you can make a hell of a living basically just building. And, I mean, that's a remarkable place we're in, but it's also, you know, our, our best and brightest are, are uh, building algorithms for, you know, fine tuning the decimal places on searches. Stuff. Yeah, it's it's a really valid point, uh, but it's a fun time to be in the market. Oh yeah, you know, there's so much opportunity and so much so much fun things to do, and and so many different areas of tech are just exploding right now. It's 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 hard to pick an area to focus in for me at least, because I talked to a founder and they get me all excited about something. Then I would it help if I just told you and, and got you a uniform for it? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, it would. <laughs> Peter, it's been a joy catching up. Um, this has been awesome. Anything else you want to you want to add before we sign off and kind of wrap up? You know, I I think that I mean you and I are both like gung ho, dyed in the wool entrepreneurs, and um, you know we're really blessed to have the right set of skills at a certain time in the world. But I think what what's been really effective in both of our lives is that deep curiosity and that willingness to take risks. And a mentor used to say, um, the two things that separate entrepreneurs is tolerance for ambiguity <laughs> and willingness to take risks. <laughs> I definitely have more of the latter <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and less of the former, which is why I'm a great co-founder. Maybe we'll be great partners someday. <laughs> that, that sounds great to me. Let's do it. Peter, this has been a joy. Seriously a pleasure to talk to you, Josh. Thank you so much. You too, buddy. That's it, everyone, and thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.